0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, everyone. Uh, today, I'm here with Furman debrand Vander. He's a professor of philosophy at the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. He specializes in moral and political philosophy and has written for a variety of national publications, including The New York Times, Washington Post, The L.A. Times, The Atlantic, The New Republic, and American Magazine. He is the author of two books, Do Guns Make Us Free, published by Yale University Press in 2015, and more recently, Life After Privacy, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. This is an interview for the Science, Technology, and Society podcast for the New Books Network, and we welcome Furman to the show.
0: Hello, how are you? Hi there, I'm good. Thank you for having me.
1: So today we're going to be discussing your uh, book from uh, from about a year, year and a half ago, uh, Life After Privacy. Um, and so why don't you tell us a little bit about it? What, where did the project start from? The project actually started a while ago.
0: Well, the idea for it started a while ago. I didn't start writing it in earnest until a few years after that, but really the idea came in 2013, um, when I was teaching Foucault of all things on, um, the Panopticon and uh, it to my students and, uh, the Edward Snowden affair dropped. And, um, you know, the revelations about what the NSA was doing and how they were spying on us. And I marched into class and I just went on a tirade telling my students, isn't this the worst? And I just, (laughs) I got crickets in return. (laughs) They were mystified. They didn't understand why this was such a big deal. And I had a very hard time persuading them. And so... I decided then and there that I was going to write a book about the threat to privacy and how we should save privacy and how we should, you know, galvanize, how we could galvanize uh, a defense among a digital, pop- digital population, these digital natives that don't seem to care much about it. Um, and the more I researched the topic and the more I talked to my students um, and, you know, the more I thought about it. I decided a different approach was in order and instead of defending privacy, which has numerous challenges against it, might not be practical. I thought, why don't I think about what life after privacy would be like, which is kind of the world we already live in. And if that world is okay, and since I'm a political thinker, programmed to worry about the fate of democracy, I wanted to think about how democracy could survive the loss of privacy.
1: Right. I mean, that's such an interesting question, because privacy, especially in the American context, uh, as you write about in the opening of your book, has become sort of synonymous with our political story.
0: It is, and it has such a complicated history. I took for granted that it was a very well respected and understood virtue. But one of the things I discovered through you know poking around this topic is people are very confused. I mean, of course, when I talk to my own students about it, they really had if I pressed them to define privacy, they had a hard time. If I pressed them to say why it was important, they had an even harder time. People don't really know what it is. And yet it's one of these values in American society we we say we value, but our behavior says otherwise. And this ambiguity, I was surprised to see, is actually backed up by our history. Um, you know, the, the privacy is not mentioned in the Constitution. Um, it was only really defined about a hundred years after uh, the Constitution was written. It was defined. By, uh, well, one of its prime legal definitions was put forth by Louis Brandeis before he was Supreme Court Justice. And then privacy itself is only really spelled out and defended um, vigorously by the Supreme Court in the 1960s. It took a long time. So... For a lot, you know, we, you know, we, we should not take for granted that privacy was always self-evident, you know, its importance was self-evident to in this country. That's hardly the case.
1: Right. And what's interesting, I think, in your book is the way in which privacy is complicated. So, you know, you start off and I think it's the first chapter, first few sections talking about we all know what the feeling of having our privacy invaded feels like there's a sensation there's you know a, a sense to it and we just struggle somehow to encapsulate this into a analytic term maybe that's the right way of putting yeah. it
0: yeah people when i ask people when i ask my students you know what is a privacy invasion and what does it feel like and what is the wrong that is constituted in a privacy invasion that's where they have such a hard time saying what that is you know um, they really can't spell it out. And of course, it doesn't help that this digital economy is premised on forking over all your information, you know. So, you know, for, you know, digital, you know, the, the digital youth, but also all the other generations like us who've been... Um, who are slowly uh acculturated to this digital economy um and actually i shouldn't say slowly quickly thanks to COVID, you know we have to give over our privacy in order to take advantage of these conveniences and i like to quote the author gary steingart who said once you know privacy is just an annoyance get it out of my way (laughs) i think a lot of people feel like that you know they they couldn't be bothered you know we talk the talk you know but a lot of people do talk the talk. A lot of people don't even bother talking the talk anymore. But at the end of the day, it's not the kind of virtue people really want to do much to to, to protect or to save, especially when they try and understand what is entailed in that.
1: Yeah, and I and you know maybe we'll get there later. I think uh, you know there's a very interesting account of of privacy, maybe even as a virtue through some of the American uh, authors. Uh, but but first, I I think for the audience and listeners out there who might be. Uh, you know, wondering why, you know, how much they'll get into this book if they pick it up. I I think we should talk about the the target case um, that you oh, mentioned yeah. in the book, and I, and because I, I found this to be kind of like a great example of why privacy is a problem and why it's impossible to articulate.
0: Yeah. So so first of all, I mean, I need you know, I think this is an incredible example too. The mega retailer. Target stores was engaged in one of the more iconic cases of data analysis and data capture. Now it is from 2012, so that's ancient in you know this fast-moving digital economy. But here's the thing: uh, our you know the, these come these and these companies that spy on us, they are pretty cagey. They don't reveal their plans, right? Because as this case will point out, you know, it can be pretty sticky, can be pretty uncomfortable what they're doing. So I still think this is just, even though it's from 2012, it's still a remarkable case. And I cite it all the time because I think it's illustrative of a couple things. It's illustrative of the kind of information our spies are looking for, which is unexpected to say the least. And it's information we can't fathom. And it also shows their their ambitions, like they, they just have tremendous ambitions for grabbing market share and data analysis is at the center of this. So the target case, um, written about in 2012 was, um, the, they, the target had, had commissioned is data analysts to figure out when female customers were in the through purchase history, when female customers were in the second trimester of pregnancy. Okay. Okay. That's specifically what they wanted to know. And a host of questions come out of this. Why do they want to know that women are pregnant? Why do they want to know they're in the second trimester pregnancy? How the heck do they know this? And I always start with audiences and ask the first question and, and, you know, how do they know? And, um, and everyone says, well, okay, now, you know, they, obviously the people, the couple was buying a crib. Or they were buying diapers, or they were buying all the stuff that young parents buy. That's false, of course. Anybody's had a kid, you know, you don't buy that in the second trimester or even leading up to it. You buy that the day of <laughs> or the day after, <laughs> or you get it, you know. So, no, 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 it was none of those things. And by the way, Target was so good at this at predicting, you know, that at figuring out you know, when women are second trimester, they could figure out the due date of their customers for to within a week. They really had this nail. Wow. And so what were they looking for? Well, it turns out their algorithm had landed upon a collection of items that were purchased very early on when women were pregnant. And these include Not on their own, but in combination, cotton balls, multivitamins, and lotion. Right. Um, Very clever of them, right? And but that's not. None of those purchases are the kinds of things that most um, customers are going to think. Oh, you know, that's a tip off, right? So it was very sophisticated. The kinds of things they were looking for. There's one famous story I love uh, surrounding this, where this, you know, this example where um, the um, uh, one family was receiving um, these uh, promotions from Target about all these new child uh, products, cribs, whatever because they determined there was a pregnant person at house. And the only one who would be pregnant was a second, 16 year old girl. And so the, and the father was irate. He went into the manager at target says, you've got to stop. This This is ridiculous. He was so mad. And the manager said, oh yes, of course, of course he goes home a week later. He calls the manager and says, I'm very sorry. You were right <laughs>
1: <My daughter laughs> is
0: pregnant target knew before he did, you know, um, and and then the other questions that surrounding this, this example are, you know, not only what they were purchasing, but why did they want to know this? Why did they want to know they were pregnant? Well, it turns out there are very few, there are only a few times in people's lives when their consumer allegiances are up for grabs and you can totally claim them and reshape their devote their, their allegiance and it and pregnancy, the delivery of a new child happens to be one of those things. And I I remember, when I had my own kids, you know, you're sleep deprived, and you you just want to go to one store and grab everything, you don't have time to go everywhere else. And I used to go to Target, actually, you know, and so that's why they want to know if you're pregnant. And then of course, the question is why second trimester well, because again, if you had a child, you know that when you're sitting there with the baby, all these promotions come in uh, from various retailers. And so you're inundated when the child comes, Target wanted to beat the rush. And so he decided, and, they, decided they wanted to get people in the second trimester.
1: And, and what line, I love about the story is yeah. just the the richness of it because on the one hand, as a reader, as you're reading the story, it's just fascinating As in you're like, this is such a great idea on the one hand. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, this is a mastermind plan to capture consumer spending. It is. is. It's mastermind
0: and it's terrifying at the same time. (laughs) Right. I just think it's hugely illuminating about what retailers want, what they want to know about us what their plans are for us. Okay. This example lays it bare. And even if it's only 10 years old, you know, that is the model. We have to understand that that's the model for their data data capture plans today.
1: And, and I think this is a great part to talk about. I mean, you know, what is the harm here? I mean, cause it's, I think even in the target case, it's hard to pin down because to be clear, target didn't do, I mean, anything legally wrong per se, right. they, use their customer data. They ran some predictions just like a grocery store might put the milk in the back of the store. (laughs) I mean,
0: yeah, this is where it gets so interesting philosophically. Uh, The, the, the journalist who wrote the article for the New York times on this case study, he went out to Minneapolis to, to meet with the executives and he sat in their waiting room for two days. They wouldn't see him. And he said, why, what is up with that? You didn't do anything illegal but they treated it like it was something wrong that they wanted to brush under the rug. Why? Well, they suspect people will be uncomfortable com- with it. Okay. That's, that's where this gets really murky and interesting. Like why are people, what is uncomfortable here? Why do people find this uncomfortable? Because at the very same time, customers are very happy to have their preferences, uh, their con- their consumer preferences, you know, laid out for them. Right. Um, you know, you know, you go on Amazon and you see all these recommended purchases and you'll say, Oh, that's exactly what I need. That's exactly what I want. Well, okay, there you go. People are generally happy for this kind of customer, um, experience, um, this cu- customer care that this provides, but what is wrong with it? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly the, the issue that I've had, you know, problems, uh, where, you know, that's where I had issues, uh, Trying to explain this to to people, you know, to convince them you know, why they should be concerned about this kind of thing. My own my own teenage son; he's in college now. He always, you know, when we talk about the issue issue, he always says, "Well, I have nothing to hide, right?" And the, inside me, you know, I've read Hannah Arendt and Foucault, and I want to say, "You don't know what you're saying." But on the other hand, you know, there is no Obvious and imminent harm is the problem. It's it's far more speculative, you know? So the way that political thinkers have always articulated the loss of privacy, and this is famously the way Foucault does, is that you will lose your freedom and your autonomy, mm-hmm. you know? But, you know, it's, it's just, it's hard to see how, uh, I think in this digital culture, it's hard to see how that could be the case, um, I mean, I guess in a worst case scenario, of course, Target, and you better believe they would love it, would hope to be manipulating our purchases, you know. Um, and do they already? Possibly. Possibly that could be.
1: And there is a question of, I mean, I think, and this is where, you know, we start to go into the rabbit hole, which is probably a good exercise as it feels also kind of reading this book. On one hand, it's like really you know, every chapter is about, you know, what's really going on here. And it's, yeah. you know, at the end, we kind of say, well, maybe we're looking in the wrong spot, but just to keep going down this, this path, you know, you might say that what's manipulation here. I mean, yeah. is it that consumers just don't know that it's going on that maybe I ended up buying everything at target and I just never knew they were really trying to convince me. But now that yeah. I know, am I better off? Right. Am I more empowered? <laughs> what am I going to
0: do? Storm over to Walmart and start shopping there? I mean, I, I question the kind of, yeah, I I wonder what kind of empowerment this can give. I really do. I, I, I'm skeptical. Um, I'm also, frankly, skeptical. I do find c- worries about manipulation. I mean, first of all, manipulation is intensely difficult to pinpoint <laughs> and identify you know, boy, that's a tough one in its own. But, um, as I was trying to argue in the book, you know, it takes two to tango, you know, you can only be manipulated if you allow yourself to be manipulated. So there's something, you know, on our, on the side of the consumer as well, that needs to be, that needs to be, um, uh, you know, changed, uh, transformed, you know, privacy, privacy protections are always about protecting the consumer, but the consumer's gotta, gotta have some responsibility as well in being able to identify when they're being manipulated and rebuffing that. And quite frankly, we're such ravenous consumers. We walk right into this trap. You know, I think that's part of the problem here, but at the end of the day, what I was really thinking is that, you know, um, all of these dangers to our privacy are very difficult to see. And then you combine that with the way consumers have changed in such a way that we are acculturated to sharing and we really care a little about privacy. I am very skeptical about the current trend of privacy regulations that you know seem to be premised precisely on consumer responsibility. I think that is... Uh, That is a, you know, that's a misguided approach and 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 vain, quite frankly, I don't think it's going to, it's futile. I don't think it's going to go anywhere.
1: Right. I mean, what it reminds me of in, I mean, well, I mean, I think what's interesting in the way you just talked about how consumers are kind of caring less and less about privacy is it reminds me of a kind of classic way of thinking about technology in, um, you know, science, technology and society literature, which is You know, how does the technology make the world that it wants? Yeah. Right. If you think about back at Google when they were forming maybe in the early 2000s or at Facebook, you know, were they laying the groundwork for the kind of capitalism that they wanted? Right. And I think that's that's what's so fascinating about the story that you tell in this book is that. You have two things happening at the same time, and it's so unclear how to disentangle them. You have both consumers kind of starting to be free and willing to share more. And at the same time, corporations making the means for it and also happily working with it. I mean, if we weren't such ravenous
0: consumers, this might not be, you know, quite a a problem. We make ourselves vulnerable through our consumer habits, you know, Um, well, it, you know, I start, it all, I also started to think about privacy, you know, it's interesting, there is a book out now uh, by a colleague, well, it's not a colleague, because I haven't met her, but she's another political thinker over at Oxford, and her book is called Privacy is Power. And I mean, I haven't read the book, but that title is exactly what I'm critiquing. I've started to think that instead of, you know, privacy, not only is it not power, Privacy might be the opposite. Privacy might actually disempower us because, you know, when I think about the American story, I think about how we have been uh, individualized and isolated and atomized in our suburban pods. You know, that's the story that predates all this, you know. By the way, that's also where we get this very strange and exceptional notion of privacy, which other cultures don't have, right? That's one thing that we haven't talked about yet is how culturally specific privacy is. It's strange. We have, on the one hand, we have incredibly high standards of privacy in this country because of our suburban lifestyle. What you see now is people don't really care much about it in their digital doings, but they better have those four walls and that, you know, that three car garage and the fence and everything. They have to have all that, but you know, I think you know th- what I mean to say is we've already become individuated and isolated as consumers, and that makes it easier for the targets of the world to pick us off.
1: Yeah, I mean that's a, I mean that's a wonderful comment. <laughs> there's a, there's a lot there to unpack. I think about yeah. privacy. Maybe it's the opposite, but just from the history of kind of social movements. I mean, inherited any social movement is a social group, right? I mean, there's yeah. no really individual movement no. in that sense.
0: Well, that's really where I, my political critique of privacy ramped up. You know, um, when I looked at all the literature and there are a lot of philosophers who are writing about the importance of privacy today, it, it largely stems from John Stewart's mill, uh, John Stuart mill, uh, you know, the way he defined the importance of privacy, he defined it largely in terms of individual freedom, you know, individual freedom of self-expression. And, you know, the way that argument goes is from Mill is, you know, we have got to have this right. We have got to be left alone to have this right. And even if my thoughts and my words are offensive to you, you know, you never know... Where, you know, where liberty is going to be expanded. You never know which ideas are going to be worth something. So you need to save them all. You need to protect them all. It's very individuated. And then, yet, when I look through the history, when I look frankly through the history of of social movements, you notice that it it's not lone individuals. It's it's groups. Now they didn't have privacy, right? What I what I meant to say is that. What you get with Mill is the suggestion that privacy is a prerequisite uh, to, to the expansion of liberties, right? If you don't have privacy, you know, then you don't have these ideas. You don't have people working on their plans for how to extend liberty. That's that's not an accurate uh, explanation or description of how social movements work. <laughs> social movements don't get time. They don't get space in which to carefully hammer out, you know, their plans and their ideas and their ideals. You know, I looked at the, I, I looked at the civil rights movement closely and I read about the closely about the union history of the union movement. These were both fascinating by the way. And I, I and about the gay rights movement through the, uh, 1980s, you know, in the civil rights movement, these, these activists never had privacy. They never had privacy. They were oppressed from the very beginning, tormented. Um, the their, They only stood a chance because they coordinated their efforts and they worked together. And then they rolled out their, their demonstrations in the public realm. And so that started me thinking that, you know, privacy is not, the essential ingredient for liberty in a democratic society. I think it's the public realm. Public realm is more important, but the public realm is also in terrible shape today.
1: Right. That's, I mean, I think a very interesting notion, uh, especially when we think about, um, you know, the increased presence of algorithms and, Different echo chamber kind of analysis on in the public sphere today, and oh. and I think the co-production of you know you send Americans out to the suburbs where we each have our own little plot of land yeah. and the interesting interplay of of privacy there when you think about neighborhood surveillance which is a whole kind
0: of oh know, neighborhood topic.
1: Surveillance. yeah for sure <laughs> it's a whole another idea of power um, <laughs> you know you see you you can see a very interesting account of how privacy is this kind of you know, economic construction, maybe of, sure. of power that goes back to Brandeis that he didn't want people taking pictures of his wedding.
0: Yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> well that was Warren, his, uh, his Warren. co-author. He didn't want people <laughs> taking pictures at his daughter's wedding. He was so upset. Funny, right? Technology at that point, that was the new technology at the time caused that hubbub. Well, you know, when I, when I was thinking about how the public realm is in such poor shape today, um, it is because, you know, gosh, I started to write this in 2016, 2017 in the aftermath of, uh, the Donald Trump presidency and, you know, which in these last five years, we've seen such a degradation of online discourse. And the point is, that in the digital age we act and we think that this digital sphere is the public realm and one thing i wanted to argue is that the digital realm does a very bad job <laughs> as a public space it's it's not acceptable it's not you know I, and i even started looking at some of the social movements of the 2010s like Occupy Wall Street, you know, compared them to the civil rights movement and civil rights movement never had, you know, Twitter in which to quickly ramp up and to, you know, have these um, crowds appear in the street quickly. Um, And yet the civil rights movement was successful. One thing that's remarkable about these networked movements, as uh, some scholars have called these moves from the 2010s, is that, uh, you know, they they emerge quickly and they're pretty impressive, but then they disappear very quickly. You know, they vanish. And, you know, like in Egypt uh, during the Arab Spring, you know, there was great fanfare about this movement and then democracy is gone a few years later. There was great fanfare around the the protests in Gezi Park in Istanbul, which were digitally mobilized and then they disappeared. And Erdogan, the president of Turkey, he's uncontested in his power. So what you've seen the last five, 10 years is that where initially it looked like social media was going to be, you know, a great new tool in the public realm against these tyrants, the tyrant the you know, autocratic regimes have figured out that this is their best friend you know, they've turned it on us. And why is that? Because in our private little bubbles and by private, I mean, you know, not invincible, but we're alone (laughs) in our little bubbles online. We're isolated from one another. One of the stories, one of the the, the stories I love to tell in the book. And I, I quote is, um, you know, that researchers, um, studying uh china's what they call the 50 cent army which is um their army of censors who are online checking every word you know researchers discovered after a while that these censors just were not censoring as much as they thought and that was very surprising and um uh Zeynep Tufekci writes about this in her book, and she has a great quote where she says this makes a lot of sense. You know, autocratic regimes, when do they fall? They fall when they lose touch with the people, when they don't have a finger on on the pulse of what's going on. Social media can do that now, right? Provided it is powerless. And I think many autocratic regimes on the world, they have concluded – that on social media, people are powerless. Okay. Why? Because they, they don't really organize they, you know, online, you can influence, you can, you know, you can, uh, isolate them through misinformation. You can abuse them. You can manipulate them, things like that. Uh, it turns out the only time that the Chinese censors, um, leaped into action is when, people on social media would start talking about organizing in the street and either for or against the government, mind you, (laughs) right? They didn't want people Mm -hmm. organizing for pro-government or anti-government, then they would censor. And, um, and someone was quoted about that saying, you know, yeah, I mean, the problem is organization as such, once people learn, once people learn this talent, you know, what's next. So that's, that really clued into me. That's where political power is. It's, it's none of this, you know, complaining on social media, you know, these campaigns on social media, these cancel campaigns. I mean, this is, at the end of the day, this is all rather impotent. You know, if you want to see real transformative power, you look at the union movements, you look at the civil rights movement. Now, the next question I have is, I don't believe that. Digital media are very helpful for either movement yet maybe there's a way we can figure it out but we haven't yet. Um, I'm I'm I am intrigued by the way that the Black Lives Matter movement has been able to um, advance its cause somewhat. So that, that uh, among the network movements, that movement seems to be doing pretty well. But you know, at the end of the day, I wonder like you know, are democratic citizens? Prepared? Do they have the kind of appetite for the activities that 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 are demanded by the civil rights movement or the union movement? You know that those guys they suffered quite a bit, um, and I'm not sure that you know we're ready for that anymore, right? I mean, digital organizing is so easy, right? Just email here. You don't have to do much, which means at the end of the day, the lack of commitment I think shows up in a variety of ways.
1: Yeah, I mean this uh, this story there even it gave me a chilling reminder of something that happened to me in my in my high school years. Actually, I was uh, organizing an animal rights group at the time, and you know we we were just kind of doing like interviews online and these sorts of practices. And then one day we attempted to organize a protest, mm-hmm. and and that day the somehow the sheriff's office got a hold of my house, telephoned, called my parents, and told them uh, what I was up to. All, yeah. all somehow through Facebook. And it was like, whoa, where did you guys come from? <laughs> uh, and, it's, and you're exactly right, I think, in in, the, in thinking about, um, you know, the inhibition to organizing. And and I think one thing that's come out recent news is what's hard to tell, and this goes back to manipulation, is is how much the public then is kind of being manipulated, though not to right? Like through Facebook kind of knowing in some of their like Facebook papers or files, right. That knowing the effects that they have on society and then choosing, you know, path a or path B.
0: Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I think they, they like us, uh, isolated, (laughs) you know, I think they, they like us anxious, um, You know what do Americans do when they get anxious? We only know how to shop, right? We don't really know anything else, so we'll just buy more, fill, feed the hole, right? I I think, um, yeah. I mean, one thing that was really came to the fore in the, you know, what was exposed about Facebook in the fall is, yeah, they they know exactly how they um, undermine our well being in a variety of ways, and they don't care because at the end of the day. Um, you know, that feeds their bottom line, right? Um, any kind of, uh, you know, productive behavior or behavior that helps us socially, our social well-being, that doesn't help them, right? So, you know, I, I suspect, I mean, not suspect, I they knew this. They, they've all known this for a very long time, really. Um, you know, it's just shameful that now it's, you know the way it's being admitted, but they've always known how they have taken advantage of us and and how they could you know uh, treat us. So I I don't I don't know that I was into I wasn't entirely surprised by that. I I don't know how the rest of the American public felt about that, but I wasn't surprised.
1: Yeah, I don't know how other people felt either, but I I too, it's a computer scientist at least in background. I I was not surprised at all, and yeah. and so I guess as a kind of closing remark in, in the book you know so you've sort of landed on that privacy is this complicated concept intertwined with power and and might not offer us as much as we think it does for democracy yeah well, i mean what do you think then we 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 should do like where we are today you know what 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 do you kind of think we should do to make movement and progress towards towards our political goals well i tell anybody who listen
0: i tell them to get off social media and, of course, I'm the biggest hypocrite because I haven't yet <laughs> because, I mean, I have this fight with my wife all the time. She is a – she's a, she's very involved in politics. She's an activist here for education policy near my home, and she's very successful. And she points out to me all the time how social media is essential to what she does. I mean, ideally, we would have some kind of middle ground where people – Yes they communicate on social media they org- you know they make plans, but the organization still has to happen in in the street. People have to understand that social media cannot be a substitute. it just can't the digital sphere cannot be a substitute. I mean I'm gonna sound old-fashioned but you know the real solution is people have to um, meet again in these physical public places that we have across the country, but which are, you know, which are neglected. You know, one of the things I've written about for many years and thought about is, you know, this is in line with our conversation about suburbia is, you know, we don't have a very uh, robust public infrastructure in this country. You know, other other countries do. You know, like I think about in in Paris, the cafes, the sidewalks are so huge, and everybody's sitting in the cafe and they're facing out. You know, that says something. That that design in itself says something. It says that the public life is important. You know, we announced something totally different in this country when I was when I I don't I haven't seen this lately, but it used to be when you were flying in this country, you would have a magazine called Sky Mall that would sit in the you know, in the pocket in front of you. And I would read it and just, I couldn't believe the stuff that was for sale and the stuff people were buying and it was so expensive. But I remember you would always see a segment of things for your backyard. You could buy a basketball court for your backyard. You could buy a volleyball court for your backyard. You could buy a bar, you know, for your basement. Well, these are all, social venues are they were right now they're in our basement who's coming to my bar <laughs> you know, i have a very strict entrance policy maybe only three or four people they'll probably look exactly like me we need you know this is just a, a, a roundabout way of saying we need more public places where we mingle and we see difference and we speak face to face because you know one of the major shortcomings of this digital sphere is what it is, is that digital communication is highly limited, right? Uh, That's a huge point in my book, which you really haven't discussed, but digital communication is probably the biggest problem. You know, Twitter is an abomination that you could communicate, you know, how can you communicate accurately in 128 characters or maybe 256 I love to quote Montaigne, where he says, a French philosopher Montaigne says, when people speak, you need to look at how they hold their head and how they shrug their shoulders and how they use their fingers and their hands. There's so much more to communication than just words, right? There is the whole person. There's a lot of nuanced communication, and that's all lost in the digital sphere, so far. I mean, maybe maybe technologists can think of a way to accommodate for that in the future, but we have not yet figured out a way to make this medium uh effective for communication. It's it's highly ineffective, which is why you see so much anger uh in these in these forums, you know. You know, the point I was making with Sky Mall is that everyone is busy feathering their nest in this country. You know, they're, they're focused on the private realm, even though they don't care about it digitally. You know, we're programmed to think uh, in terms of uh, what we have and what we can do at home and very, you know, highly curated spaces where we'll, we'll only let few people in that look just like me into my basement bar or my backyard pool. And, the solution to overcoming this kind of isolation is, you know, vibrant public places that exist in this country, but which are r- relatively unused where we can mingle with one another, you know, physically, because one of the key problems of digital media is that communication is so poor because it's so incomplete. There's so little that is actually, uh, conveyed, uh, through just typing on Twitter, you know, there's so much more to communication than just, than just words. Um, you have to look at people to really grasp the full nuances of communication. And that's why this physical realm is so important. And I do see, and this solution that I'm you know talking about is, is very big and it's, it's rather speculative perhaps, but I, you know, and I'm not a technologist and, and what I'm, good, you know, I don't have any regulations to propose because I don't believe any regulations are going to help us with this problem of privacy today, especially because we're so individualized. You know, the solution is community, organization, public realm. And I would say as a last point that I'm very encouraged by, you know, the youth and their appetite for this new kind of Infrastructure, this new kind of environment. You know, um, my students—they are, are loath to return to their suburban pods. They, you know, I teach in the city of Baltimore, which is a pretty rough town, and they are thrilled to be there. Many of them stay. They—they they love the parks and the streets and the blocks and the corner bars. You know, this erstwhile public infrastructure, this is what people are hankering for again, you know, and I, and I do see, you know, I write other examples in my book, you know, about new development trends, that where the how this appetite is manifest in other ways, you know, I think, I think this, so the shortcomings of digital privacy, you know, can be overcome when we reach out, ide- ironically, and branch out to other people, and and form these powerful bonds, you know, that's the way that we can best protect ourselves um, from our powerful spies in the government and, and, the, and the corporate world. You know, we have got to, to emulate what the unions did once upon a time and what civil rights movement did once upon a time, which is, you know, form these larger associations that can then empower us individually.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a sort of great takeaway from from the book, especially as we think about ending of the pandemic and what it means to kind of come out again into society. Um, that's right. You know, thank you, thank you so much for for your time today. Uh, I know we've taken up a good amount of it, and I imagine people will be excited to take a look at this book as inspiration for this <laughs> hopefully new era coming soon. Um, you know, last question: Is there anything you know new that you're working on that you want to share with? Well, uh, I am continuing to write about, you know, there's
0: there's no shortage of technological innovations that are fascinating to write about. And this past year, I've been writing a lot about health surveillance, you know, the way that we are opening up our lives and inviting the spies um, on our Fitbits and into our beds, these smart beds, you know, we can't get an, the aura ring, which was a big hit during COVID, you know, people are just... There, this is, this is another reason I say that privacy is, is pretty doomed. You know, people are eager to have themselves surveyed in the name of, in the for the sake of health. So that's a fascinating new frontier in innovation.
1: All right. Well, thank you for your time. And, uh, we look forward to, uh, hopefully interviewing you about any future work that comes out. All right. Thank you, Austin.